You're listening to Kindling Conversation with Siobhan Hunt, part of Kindling Kids Radio. Parenting, like many things in life, goes through its own trends. There can be a wave of information about certain styles of parenting, or maybe it's advice on how to deal with something like teething or unsettled sleep. Robin Barker, author of Baby Love, has seen a few in her time and knows of more before her time. She's done the research and she's come up with some pretty crazy things that happened in our history. She's here to share some of the more outlandish parenting trends. Hi, Robin. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. Um, you do like to put this in context, though, don't you? You say all, par- all crazy parenting trends came from somewhere or some historical reason. Most of them. Most of them. However, I do have trouble working out where amber beads have come from. <laughs> Parents who can't deal with teething babies? I don't know. Well, I don't know, but uh, it's, it's hard for me to work that one out. But often, often things that we decry now... When you look at the social circumstances and the and the knowledge that was available then and uh, all sorts of things, then you can understand why certain things were told to mothers at certain times. Okay, well let's start with the <laughs> let's start way back when in the eighteenth mm. century. So in the seventeen hundreds, there were some um, pretty crazy things they were doing. Well, yes, yeah, so that's this is a very interesting one. Babies from birth were tightly bound up. Uh, and their heads were also bound up. Their necks were supported and they were placed on a board. They were bound to a board. And then the board was hung by a nail, we hope a secure nail, oh to the God. wall. <laughs> oh, my Lord. While the mother got about her many duties. Uh, living in circumstances we can only... We, it's hard for us to imagine. However, um, the idea behind this was not for the convenience of the mother, but because it was, it was thought that the baby's bones were so fragile that they needed binding up so they wouldn't break. Wow. The other thing that happened was that the, na- the well, there weren't any nappies, but the babies weren't changed. So they were left mouldering. Oh, my God. <laughs> that is just... And it was believed that the discharges from the baby uh, went back into the baby's system. And that the babies needed it, so that, that was that was the reason why they weren't changed. Where did they get that uh, supposition sure from? I'm not sure where that particular one came from. There was possibly some professional advice in there, but a lot of it would have been handed down. Yeah, probably from parents to parents. It was, it was sort of what was tradition, if you like, what was done. And I, I imagine mm. that smells in that time of. Oh, well, everyone History. smelt. I mean, yeah. every, when you read back in time, everybody comments on how everyone and everything must have smelt. Yeah. We have, we, we have no comprehension of that either, I don't think. No. Maybe hopefully they all had blocked noses. <laughs> um, what about historical approaches to teething? I found this quite hard to read, to be honest. I know. My favourite topic, teething. When I try and put forward the argument today that it is illogical, to blame everything on teething the way we do, and I'm met with horror and um, accusations of making mothers feel bad or something, Um, you only have to look back in time and realise teething was thought to be a medical condition, and in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, of course, nutrition was terrible, and a lot of babies had scurvy, in fact. Wow. And one of the signs of scurvy is swollen gums. So the swollen gums were thought to be teething because the baby was obviously not thriving and upset and cross and cranky. And 
It was believed that if you lanced the gums... Oh, don't. (laughs) It would relieve the baby's symptoms of teething. And then they often used to drop laudanum onto the gums, which, of course, is a derivative of morphine. Uh, And in really severe cases, sometimes... um, do you want me to go on? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm thinking people might be eating. Oh, Elise is saying definitely yes. Uh, that's because you've had lunch, Elise. That's they why. would cut the guns open and take all the teeth out. Oh. And, of course, the babies died after that. My God, that's yeah. terrible. So, I mean, oh. it's time we really got over the teething thing. Let's really. just give them a cold washer. <laughs> oh, my poor children from the past. Uh, yes, yes. Well, not my poor children. That sounds like I'm... <laughs> I don't know what that sounds like, but they're not my children. I just feel sorry for the children of the past. One wonders how we've increased in population numbers to the extent we have. <laughs> I know, especially after you go through all the plagues. Uh, all that. Oh, that's I mean, yeah. extraordinary. Okay, we're really? going to go on a tangent if I'm not careful. Mm. You're listening to Kindling Conversation. I am speaking with Robin Barker about the crazy parenting trends that uh, she has identified throughout history. And we were just talking about teething. I'm not going into it. It was gross enough the first time. Um, can you talk to me about diphtheria? Because I know that kids are vaccinated against diphtheria now. Um, what it, what does that disease look like? And you were in, in how did, was it dealt with in the 20s, Okay, 1920s? so diphtheria was a serious, I think, oh, I should have looked this up, a uh, serious <laughs> bacterial infection that affected the trachea and the, um, the, the, down to, towards the lungs. Right. And a membrane developed there. It was extraordinarily toxic mm. and many, many, many babies died from it. In my father's generation, he told me this. He survived it, actually. Um, And what they believed was that if you stood out in the sun, stood the child out in the sun and made them open their mouth and look at the sun, that the sun would uh, cure the diphtheria. Wow. So my father had enduring memories of being half dead with this dreadful disease, being made to stand out in the sun with his mouth open. Oh, my goodness. Yes. And, I mean, he survived the Japanese in New Guinea. But I think that experience <laughs> scarred him. Probably was worse for him than fighting in World War Two. Wow, wow! And um, there are some interesting trends throughout the forties and fifties when it comes to different things that were happening with children. Can you tell me how colic was treated? Well, the problem with things like teething and colic is that we use these terms mostly to explain unexplainable behaviour. And they bring a bit of comfort and they're not seen in themselves as being serious. So they're kind of a good explanation for sometimes what is normal baby behaviour or reasons why babies are crying and we don't really know why they're crying. Colic uh, is still spoken of to some degree, although it has been overtaken by reflux, I have to say. Um, But colic, it was assumed the baby was crying so much because they had a bellyache. Because when babies get upset for any reason and they scream, their face goes red and they draw their knees up. I mean, that is just a reflex that they have. So if you go back to the 19th century, colic was treated with laudanum, which is a derivative of morphine. Wow. And alcohol, of course. They were given brandy and things like that. As we moved into the 20th century, in the 1940s and, and prior to that, it was often diagnosed, babies often diagnosed with colic were given this um, medicine of phenobarbitone and atropine in some sugary syrupy stuff. What are, what are those things you just Phenobarb mentioned? Phenobarb is a barbiturate. 
right. which absolutely knocks you unconscious. So, of course, it cured the colic, as in it stopped the crying. I'm not really sure what the atropine was supposed to do. Uh, so it's, it was a dangerous medication, really. And I had someone di- diagnosed with colic and given that medication as, as recently as, the, as during the 1980s. And I had to explain to the mother <laughs> that it was probably not in the baby's best interest, that crying was probably less harmful than that Isn't particular that medication. And poor parents. So any medication that soothes colic inevitably has a sedative in it. So just recently there was some chemist somewhere proclaiming his colic medicine he was selling was marching out the door of the chemist shop. When I looked at what was in it, there was a relaxant in it, which relaxants are not actually sedatives, but they have a sedative effect on babies. So what these medications do is um, certainly they stop the baby from crying, but they sedate them. And in the case of relaxants, once that wears off, so if you give it to the baby often enough, the baby's system gets used to it, the crying will return. And that, none of this is particularly new. It's been going on <laughs> for centuries, actually. Oh, I find uh, it surprising. I've yes. never heard of that. Yes. So, um, well, I, I have mean, heard of we people... used to give everyone Mabentil in the 1970s, 80s for colic, and Mabentil actually acted as a sedative. It's a muscle relaxant. Yeah. So its immediate effect was sedative, whereas mothers assumed that the Mabentil was causing the spasms to go away. Mabentil was proclaimed as being dangerous, so it was stopped being used. What about um, the dangers of mouth breathing? Yes, I picked that up in a book. And uh, in the early part of the 20th century, no, no, I think this goes back to the 19th century, but it probably still persisted. These things kind of get driven and, and get to, tradi- become traditional and carry on. It was thought that mouth breathing in babies was dangerous because it would infect their tonsils. So advice in one of the popular books at the time was when after the baby was asleep to creep in and if the baby's mouth was open, breathing through the mouth, gently close the jaw so the mouth was shut and then place a rolled up napkin or something under the chin. Sid's researchers would be just groaning in horror. To keep the mouth shut. Wow. I can just imagine all those mums like waiting so to look, hear. So the, the main message here for all mothers is, you know, just use common sense when you come in <laughs> across batty ideas. There's been batty ideas thrown at mothers forever. Well, I'd like you to talk about the Vegemite in bottles. That was something I'd never well, heard of. that's a good one, yes. Um, again, the early part of the 20th century when babies went on to um, what was called formula, in fact, it was really just milk and water and sugar and a few things like that, all proclaimed to be as good as mother's milk. Um, a common piece of advice was to put a little tiny tab of Vegemite into the bottle. <laughs> <laughs> Make them Australian as Vegemite. Because it made their complexions really nice. <laughs> <laughs> Does it work? I might go start putting well, Vegemite in my... my mother did it with my sister apparently <laughs> and she said my sister's complexion was beautiful. Oh, that is just great. Now, okay, see, I have never heard of, is it Klaus and Kennel in the oh, 19, Klaus and Kennel, In yes. the 70s. What, right. what kind, who are they and right. what kind well, of influence well, they were they have? researchers looking into um, human behaviour, baby behaviour, and on the kind of avalanche of attachment theory that came from 
John Bowlby in the 1940s, in itself, nothing wrong with attachment theory. However, what has come out of attachment theory, I have many problems with, uh, how it's been kind of we'll extrapolated. Get on. We'll get and we'll on to talk that. about that later. But yes. Klaus and Kennel, uh, after their research, and human behaviour is very hard to research, came up with the idea that maternal infant bonding had to was crucial and had to happen at birth and that babies who were properly bonded to their mothers from birth never cried. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and this, it was widely accepted in the, in the 70s and into the 80s, widely accepted. Their book was everywhere. Everybody had it. Uh, it was recommended by professionals, places like Tresillian Caritani all had copies of it, and it was taken on board with gusto. I mean, in itself, okay. However, we then had a decade of mothers, frantic, because, you know, they might have been exhausted after birth, their baby might have been taken away to special nursery, or like a friend of mine, she looked at her baby, had a very funny-shaped head and looked most unattractive, she shrieked, Um, and all these sorts of normal things that happen they were then convinced that their baby was going to grow up with all sorts of problems because they weren't properly attached. And we got to a stage where mothers were saying, is he attached? Am I attached properly? You know, oh. this, this kind of language evolved out of it. Well, Klaus and Kennel's theory was exposed to be flawed and they themselves even back, back, took a step back from it. Mm. So while we accept that, bonding with mothers after birth is important. If it doesn't happen straight away, (laughs) we've got plenty of time to make up for it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So look, just to end, which doesn't have to happen quickly, Robin, at all, what are the most recent crazy parenting trends you've seen? Now, you've started talking about attached... Yeah, amber beads. Uh, We've covered that. (laughs) What about... um, So you said the... The sort of the ramifications of attachment parenting. Yes, we can talk more fully about that at another time. There, there has to be a distinction made between attachment theory and attachment parenting. However, we can do that at another day. In the meantime, this current parenting category that is everywhere, I mean, we've got attachment parenting, detachment parenting, helicopter parenting, nighttime parenting, free-range parenting, and the latest, <laughs> which I stumbled across at the weekend... Um, lawnmower, lawn mowing parenting. <laughs> what are lawn mowing parenting? They're parents who go ahead of their children and mow the way for the children to have a free run <laughs> to do whatever it is they want to do. Now, the thing is, poor old parents, they're probably trying to work out which category they're in. In my experience, overwhelmingly, most parents do a bit of everything. Yeah. And this business of trying to categorise them into certain groups which might either be seen for the good or for the not so good, I think is doing parents a huge disservice. Yeah, I think that's a great one to end on because, you know, I often have been like, in the past I've definitely gone, am I a helicopter parent? Am I? I don't know. I don't want her to fall off that really tall tower. Does of course that you don't. A... How perfectly normal is that? Yeah, exactly. Robin, as always, such a pleasure to have you in. Thank you. Thanks, Siobhan. That's Robin Barker. She's the author of Baby Love, but Robin has her own website. You can find out more about her writing there. It's robinbarker.net.au. 
You've been listening to a Kindling Conversation podcast. We'd like to reach as many parents as possible, and you can help us by giving us a review wherever you downloaded this episode. It means that more people can find us. I'm Siobhan Hunt. See you next time.